Recovery Elevator, episode 22. And she was like, sir, have you been drinking? And I was like, uh, I looked down at myself and I said, well, can I get out of this? And I realized that no, because I had peed all over myself and uh, defecated in my seat and I could smell it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my iPhone, I have been sober for 10 months, one week, and five days. We've got a great podcast in store for you guys today, and I'm going to interview Bridger, who after waking up in his own car in a bar parking lot covered in his own urine by a police officer, he realized it was time to stop drinking. Before that, I'm going to talk to you about drunk driving. Yes, it's kind of that taboo thing. If you drink, whether you're an alcoholic or not, chances are you have probably gotten behind the wheel when you shouldn't have. It's kind of a taboo thing in culture. But the legal limit, 0.08 in most states, is actually really, really low. I remember growing up thinking that a drunk driver was the absolute worst thing you could possibly grow up to become. And I would never, ever do it. But man, unfortunately, I'm on the other side of the coin now. And as of about five days ago, I was on a probationary driver's license from a DUI that I got last summer. And I will touch more upon my DUI experiences, that's plural, unfortunately, in a later upcoming podcast. Let's touch base about the drinking and driver culture first. Some of the stats that I get here are from a Freakonomics article, and the link can be found at the recoveryelevator.com website under podcast number 22, and also based off a blog from Tim Stoddard from SoberNation.com. First off, there are over 75,000 bars in the United States. And if you think every patron is pulling out a BAC card with their body weight and the amount of drinks that they've consumed and, and, and lining it up with the graph and saying, okay, I'm good to go. Well, you're wrong. In fact, I've never seen that scenario play out. You'd think there'd be a BAC chart on the wall before you leave every bar, but there's not. And another crazy stat, the average drunk driver, before they get a DUI, they drive 87 times before getting caught. When I first read that, I was like, BS, that's ridiculous. And I thought about it, and that stat probably holds true to me, unfortunately. So the legal limit in most states is 0.08, but a BAC of just 0.05 gives you a 38% chance more of crashing. I don't like those odds. All right, here are some alarming statistics about drunk driving. Car crashes are the number one killer in teens. To put some more perspective on this, one third of all auto fatalities of kids and their teens are alcohol related. Another one is eight teens die every day in DUI crashes. That is way too many. Next one, in 2005, 7,420 teens died or were injured in DUI crashes. Teen fatalities make up 20% of all alcohol-related crashes, though licensed teens only make up about 6% of the overall licensed population. It's not an even correlation. Another stat is males are almost twice as likely than females to get behind the wheel and drive while impaired. And it's not like males are twice as likely to become alcoholic than females. I do know women mature faster than men, but maybe they are just more mature than men in general. I probably will leave that one out when I go back to edit this podcast. I don't know if this is a macho thing for guys to be like, oh, I got it. I can do this. Sure, I can get you guys home. But dude, actually the manly thing to do is to call a cab. Tell your friends you probably shouldn't be driving them. The roads at night are not safe. I read a stat one time that one out of seven drivers after 9 p.m. are drunk drivers with a BAC over 0.08. 
More on that, alcohol involvement in crashes peak from the hours of 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. and is higher on weekends than on weekdays. Among crashes occurring at night, 50% of the drivers had a blood alcohol content higher than the legal limit. One of the most alarming one is, is alcohol is involved with one-third of all fatal car crashes in the United States. Another sobering fact is, well, probably not so sobering, is according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, there is a drunk driving fatality every 45 minutes. Now, yes, this is a worldwide issue, but come on, America. The percent of fatal crashes that involve alcohol in Japan is one-third the rate of it is in the United States. In Britain, it's half. I've been to Britain, and that surprises me. The only other industrialized country that has a higher percentage of fatal crashes involving alcohol is Canada. And that is also surprising. They're just so nice up there. In fact, I think they're so nice, I know why. They're saying... Hey, uh, why don't I give you a ride home, eh? No, I'm okay. I got this. They're just too nice to accept the ride. So Canada, stop being so nice. Let your friend drive you home and get home safe. So what we can conclude here is that drinking and driving kills people. For whatever reason, statistics show that in multiple car accidents involving a drunk driver and a sober driver, and there is one survivor, it's usually the drunk person. Life's not always fair. And in my mind... I'd say, hey, it's probably the drunk person that shouldn't see the daylight after a car crash like that. But here's why. There's a term called the ragdoll effect. It's what happens when you are in a rollover accident. If you try to control the situation, which is surprising because alcoholics always try to control the situation, but in a rollover car accident, we actually relinquish all control and we surrender to the role. Man, this is quite the pickle here. So if you do surrender to the role, you go lifeless. You just let your body roll with the crash. If you try to fight it, which is what the sober person does, you end up getting more hurt and therefore your chances of dying are increased. I heard about the ragdoll effect watching NASCAR one time. I can only imagine Dale Earnhardt's racing coach saying, you know, Dale, when you come around lap seven and you find yourself hitting an oil patch and you're just rolling in midair, you just got to enjoy the ride, Dale. Just enjoy the ride. You got to let those limbs go like, like a limp noodle. Just let the race car take you. Now, listen to me talking about how we should break social stigmas. There I am imitating a redneck, or what I think a redneck would sound like. I don't even know if I know a redneck. And so, sorry about that if you're a NASCAR fan, and I offended anybody with my redneck impersonation. Another thing, drunk drivers usually survive head-on collisions at a higher rate than sober drivers. The reason why is most cars, that's how they're tested for safety. They ram those things head-on straight into a brick wall. It's hard to test your Camry for safety by putting a human being in the driver's seat and saying, all right, Mike, in the last fraction of a second, swerve the wheel to the right as hard as you can and try to miss the tree. Yeah, drunk drivers, our reaction time is impaired, so we usually see it coming too late and we hit that thing head on. Well, I do live in Montana, and since I am driving sober now, next time I see a moose or a buffalo in the road, sorry, I just got to blast it head on. Again, drunk driving is 100% preventable. You think. I've told myself that. But somehow, I always ended up behind the wheel, which I am not proud of. If you're listening to this podcast saying, Paul, you are a real POS for drinking and driving that many times. I'm okay with that. And it's understandable. And there are a lot of people that I need to apologize to when I said, no, I'm good. I'll drive you home. To me, I felt fine, but I was drunk and I was driving. And I put them in a very risky situation. And I feel terrible about that. Now, all these scary stats, they won't do anything to an alcoholic to prevent them from drinking and driving more. 
legal ramifications. Hey, if you get another DUI, you're going to go to jail for a long time. You're a teacher. You get a job. You're going to lose your teaching job. No, that doesn't stop an alcoholic from drinking. A legal fine of $1,000? Yeah, it might put a dent in our wallet, but we're eventually going to drink and drive again because it's not a problem of driving. It's not a problem that we took the wrong route home. It's not a problem that that damn cop sits at the same intersection at midnight and just picks people off. That's not the problem. Problem is, we're an alcoholic. And we start drinking, we can't stop. And our thinking becomes drastically impaired. Before we get to the interviewee, Bridger, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Bridger to the podcast. Bridger, how are you? I'm doing fine, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us this Monday morning. Let's get right into it, Bridger. How long have you been sober? Uh, I've been sober six years since uh, March 8th of 2009. Congratulations on six years of sobriety. Now, Bridger, let's jump right into the podcast title. Tell me about your elevator. When did you decide to quit drinking? Tell me when you decided to get off your elevator and start climbing back up those steps in 2009. Oh, man. Uh, that, was, that was a rocky elevator. Um, I guess... I, <sighs> I have to start with um, when my dad passed away. Uh, I was experimenting with alcohol and its effects. Um, you know, high school, early, uh, early college, or out of high school years. Um, when my dad passed away, that life event really changed me, and uh, I realized I didn't have the coping skills to deal with pain, suffering, fear, anger, all that kind of stuff. And then as life happens, you know, that stuff doesn't go away. Um, but the alcohol got more and more my best friend, my, uh, my coping mechanism, uh, as it were. And, um, I hit my bottom and I should have hit it earlier after my third DUI, but four DUIs in seven years, uh, I finally realized after I had a child that, um, you know, that all could be taken away and I could be in jail for, you know, a long period of time and I wouldn't see my kids. I wouldn't get to see my family. Um, I was sitting not to, not to offend anybody or to gross out anybody, but I was sitting in a point where I realized that I was, you know, drunk, passed out in a parking lot of a bar and a cop was knocking at my window and she was like, sir, have you been drinking? And I was like, uh, I looked down at myself and I said, well, can I get out of this? Am I drinking? Can I pass? And I realized that no, because I had peed all over myself and uh, defecated in my seat, and I could smell it, and there was no possible way that I was going to get out of this. Um, then the fear took over, and I was like, oh, no. You know, I'm never going to see my kid. I'm not going to see my family. I'm going to jail. I'm, my life is ruined. I am embarrassed. I am shameful. I'm guilty. Oh man, everybody's going to be disappointed. You know, that kind of a bottom really shook me. And it happened before, but I didn't really have any consequences from it. But that fear of losing everything, that 
that period, that point in my mind where I was like, I'm done. Like, this is it. And there's no, there's no getting it back. Um, my decision got me here, and I need to make a decision to not be here again. Bridger, talk to me about your drinking habits before you reached your bottom, which sounded like a shitty situation, pun intended. How much did you drink? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, it's okay. Had, hey, I appreciate that. I had That's to throw that one in there. Talk to me about your drinking habits. Before that night in the parking lot of the bar in 2009, did you ever try to yep. control or regulate your oh, drinking oh. habits? Talk to me about that. All the time. I, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I enjoyed it at first um, because it was um, something that I did at leisure or partied or did whatever I could to enjoy the time. But when it got to a point where people around me were saying, you know, maybe you should slow down or that's, that's an awful lot or, you know, we don't want to go out with you because you always end up getting in trouble or the police end up coming or something. Then I started saying, wow, you know, maybe I should just drink a six pack a day. You know, that should be my, my limit that if I go over that, then I'm, then I'm drinking too much. And then it became, well, it's the weekend so I can have a little bit more because I don't have anything going on. And you know, as long as I don't show up for work drunk, I'm okay. Well, then that changed. I said, well, at least if I'm not drunk around my child, I'll be fine. You know, everything's fine. I mean, normal people do that. Well, then that changed. Um, well, if I don't drink at work, then I'll, then that's like the ultimate, you know. Well, then that changed. Well, if I don't have to go to jail, then I'm not an alcoholic, right? Because I've never been to jail. I just, you know, had bad luck with being picked up while going from my house to wherever I was going and they just, they thought I was too drunk to drive. Well, they, you know, that changed many times. Um, my family talking to me all the time, you know, I would go a weekend with spending all my money that I had earned on a weekend bender. And I was buying drinks for myself. I was trying to buy people, you know, to come talk to me, party with me, hang out with me. I was buying booze so that people would come back and party with me after the bars had closed. I was going and putting myself in situations that I was embarrassed about when I woke up in the morning. Um, I was shameful about, like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that I spent that much money. How am I going to survive this next week? You know, I'm going to have to ask people for money. And I realized that I put more emphasis on how much money I had for booze and for drinking than I did on did I have enough money to buy food for the rest of the two weeks until I got paid again. And I put more emphasis on, you know, if I go out and spend money and buy people drinks and tip the waitresses and bartenders, they'll give me free drinks or they'll hang out with me and I'll be popular. Well, you know, all of that is well and good except for the fact that I have a problem and it was costing me more, um, you know, it was costing me more than I had. I, at the very end of my drinking, I was probably drunk. I, I, I couldn't go to sleep without being drunk. So I was at least 12 pack or, or a six pack a night, depending on how fast or how much I had uh, to eat that day, or how fast I drank it. I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. So I drink over everything. I would, you know, buy beer every night. I'd lost my license, so I was riding my bike in the wintertime uh, to a store to get beer. And uh, it, it, it escalated. Uh, it ebbed and flowed. Um, there were times when I didn't drink that much, but I was happy at that time. So when things were good, you know, I really didn't need to drink that much. Um, but when things were really good, then I needed to drink a lot because I was so excited um, and everything was so cool. 
and I needed to make it more cool by being drunk or buzzed so that I could really have a good time. So, I mean, it, I don't remember the exact amounts, to be honest with you. I just remember that uh, I always had beer in the house or a beer in my hand if I was not at work. Bridger, you mentioned some of your friends didn't want to hang out with you because they'd associate you with trouble or say, if we hang out with Bridger uh-huh. tonight, we're going to get in trouble. Talk to me about how drinking affected relationships, be it with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers. Just talk to me about that. Well, I had a group of friends um, that I, when I got to the, the place where I'm living, that I kind of uh, gravitated towards because they drank heavily just like I did. And at that point, I realized that I fit in somewhere. And the more they drank, the more I was allowed to drink. And the more partying they did, the more partying I did. Um, the only problem was uh, my disease wouldn't allow me to uh, quit or slow down or, you know, I didn't have any control whatsoever. I thought I did, but I didn't. And I realized that out of that group, then I started realizing, well, they, you know, they don't, that person doesn't drink as much as everybody else. And, you know, he's always sober when he drives home or, you know, he's always doing everything in the morning that he wants to do. And I'm hungover. I can't even move. Getting called by the police, getting the police calls and getting pulled over, um, getting taken to, you know, the jail to dry out so that uh, they would allow me to get out and go home. Getting in fights, being a part of fights at bars, um, doing stupid things like stealing an umbrella from a restaurant because it was raining and thought, you know, being drunk, that's a good idea because, you know, they put those there for people who need umbrellas when it's raining. And um, walking down Main Street, singing, you know, with this umbrella in my hand that's, you know, a good nine foot umbrella that's supposed to be for a table. And I'm, you know, drunk walking around downtown with it and thinking that I'm cool and everybody else is laughing, thinking that I'm funny. But no, they're laughing at me because I'm an idiot. And I get police who are, you know, right there. They said, is that your umbrella? I said, uh, no. And they took me to jail. That was very embarrassing. Um, my friends kind of started realizing that I was making poor choices and they felt sorry for me, thinking that they could help me by taking me to places and doing things where drinking wasn't uh, a main focus. But, you know, being young, early 20s, that's all you wanted to do was go out and hang out and drink and party and dance and, and enjoy good music. Um, and everything just kind of always gravitated back towards the bar. And every every once in a while, friends would stop coming out. Um, and then pretty soon, at the very end, it was just me and a couple of guys. And we were always getting in trouble. Um, and nobody wanted to come hang out with us, but we always see them out. So they were going out by themselves or with other people, not with us. And, you know, with my family, it really affected how they felt. You know, they were scared. My mom, God bless her heart, she's uh, stuck with me through it all. I'm sure she spent many sleepless nights worrying about me. She, you know, she helped, enabled me to a point that she would always give me money when I thought when I told her I was broke. But my honesty, you know, being drunk wasn't very, very high. So I was lying to her because I wanted to get booze. And I think she kind of knew that. But at the same time, she didn't want me to be unhappy or upset and didn't want me to go out and get it any other way. But she would never, I mean, she, to the point where she didn't stop beer in the house, she didn't want me to be around when the other people were drinking. Um, if I had a beer, she would get really anxious and, and talk to me about, you know, you know, that's, I'm not going to let you have any more. They had a surprise birthday for me one year. I think it was, uh, I think it was when I was 28 or so. 
and um, I ended up getting into a huge fight with my mom and my sister. And you know, I I, I regret that to this day. I've I've apologized to him. I've made amends to him for it. And that fight um, with my mom and my sister uh, is still very significant in my life of my drinking. I've never been that I not sort of um, verbally um, abusive towards my family because I was drunk and they denied me the ability to drink or uh, were talking to me about how my drinking problem was affecting them. I lashed out and got very, very upset. And, you know, that's, that's probably the point where my family drew the line and said, you know what? Uh, I don't know if we can help him because unless he wants to help himself, there's nothing more we can do. And, you know, when I worked, I was moments away from being fired because they knew I had a drinking problem. They knew I was at work drunk. They knew I was at work hungover. They had talked to me numerous times um, about it. Um, they confronted me about it. And to the point where before I, before I wanted to help myself, they were, I learned later, uh, they were, you know, days away. One more, you know, one more thing would have happened and they would have basically said, I'm not welcome back here. And, you know, nobody at work wanted to hang out with me anymore. You know, I wasn't, I was always watched at the company parties because of, you know, the drinking and the amount of trouble that would follow. <laughs> and uh, so I just ended up leaving the parties early, uh, not drinking at the parties and then going out to the bars afterwards and getting drunk on my own. You know, I was going to show them, you know, you can't tell me I can't drink. That was my thinking. Bridger, you might be an alcoholic if you're arrested after walking down Main Street singing with a nine-foot table umbrella that you just stole. That is an amazing story. I know, not funny, but uh, I've, I've got. Oh, it's funny now. At the time, no, it wasn't that funny. I was very embarrassed, but it's funny now. There will be yeah. a podcast episode where I talk about my golf ball story, where it's basically the Hansel and Gretel story, where I think uh, they just left a trail of breadcrumbs to their house. I basically <laughs> did that same thing with fifteen hundred golf balls. While oh drunk. my goodness! Exactly. That is. That's 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 priceless. Uh, yeah, that's I, I should probably expand on that more later in a podcast episode. <laughs> Made the newspaper the next day. Yeah, it was. It was oh good. yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that time in 2009. You're in your car. The cops asking you, "Have you been drinking?" Talk to me about what it was like after that. Obviously, you had to get cleaned up a little bit. Talk mm-hmm. to me more. What was it like the first 24 hours, the first 72 hours, first month, first year? Man. Yeah, every time I go back there, I get goosebumps and chills, uh, and that knot in your stomach comes up. That that fear, anxiety thing comes up because I, it's so real to me. That fear, that 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 moment is still so real in my mind and in my body. Yeah, I uh, I was that was the point where fear and anxiety, uh, the the mental, the frustration with yourself. I was so disappointed in myself that I had allowed this to happen. And I was the only one responsible for it. And I kind of realized that. And I was like, you know, I can't blame anybody anymore. You know, I can't blame my friend for getting me drunk and buying me those shots. I can't blame anybody for leaving me um, without a ride. I can't blame anybody for taking me to the bar out of town where I didn't really know where I was. Um, you know, I couldn't do that anymore um, because I was the only one that was responsible for it. Uh, and I had to take accountability for it. And I said, you know what, I'm going to change from right now. Um, and I had done that before. But I, I, it was real. Like, it was a different reality for me. That first 24 hours, I was paranoid. I was nervous. I was, I was constantly sweating. 
I don't even think I was hungover because I was so drunk, but I'd never felt like that drunk ever. And I realized that, you know, I needed to do something. And so I reached out to somebody right away and I said, you know, what do I do? And, you know, if I'm honest, at first I was like, how do I get out of this? And they were like, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to get out of it, but, you know, if you want to change your life, I know some people that can help. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I do. And my gut told me that, but my brain was telling me, well, just tell them what you want to, they want to hear and maybe you can get out of your real problem, which is your priority is to get out of going to jail. And so the, I finally caught up with somebody that um, gave me some advice and gave me the name of a lawyer. And he was like, you know, if you want to change, I, uh, I'll talk to you and we can, and I'll give you some solutions to how to really solve your problem, not just today. Uh, I had been through meetings. I had been through, you know, court-appointed classes to help you educate yourself on, you know, alcohol and being an alcoholic and and counselings as to, you know, you're an alcoholic, you need help kind of things. And I just always dismissed it. And I'd go out and get drunk afterwards. It was just a step that I had to go through. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell everybody what they want to hear. And then you can go do what you want. But this time it was different because I was like, you know, I kind of do. I, I really, I'm not happy. My life stinks. I'm depressed and sad all the time. And the only thing that's helping is getting drunk. And that's, I feel so terrible about that. That's not how I want my life to be. And, you know, I have a son and he deserves better than that. You know, my mother is taking care of me and she deserves better than that. My work has always stood by me. They deserve better than that. So I took him up on it and he was like, I said, what do I do? And he was like, call this number. I said, okay. So I called it and I talked to a guy, uh, a counselor, and he said, you know, if you're really serious about changing your life, you know, you need to quit drinking. And if you don't think you can, then you need to go someplace that will help you. So I said, that's it. I'm going to go to Rimrock and I'm going to quit drinking in rehab and I'm going to learn, you know, how to change my life. And that's what I did. I had to stay sober for a week on my own volition. I decided that I wasn't going to drink ever. Took all the beer out of my house, gave it to my mom, said, here, don't let me have it. I don't care how mad or upset I get. I, here's my money. Here's my debit card. Here's everything. I don't want it. I called my work and I said, I'm going to treatment. I have to, they don't have a bed for me until 48 hours. And um, I said, I, I, I need to get some stuff sorted out. I'm not going to be in for the week and then I'm going to be gone for a month. Uh, and they said, well, you, know, you need to come in and talk to the boss. And I did. And he was very, very, very welcoming and open-minded and supportive. I went through treatment. I was, it was probably the worst goodbye ever uh, to my son, um, crying the both sides, you know, just that, that tearing apart of an attachment between the son and father. Um, we were so close, you know, like best friends. And that memory also sticks out with me. And, you know, I wouldn't have to go through that if I would have, um, that I had a problem sooner and didn't need to get to that point. I was overwhelmed in that first, you know, three months or so. I mean, I was in treatment, so I was protected. I had people there that would talk to me about stuff. I was learning about my disease. I wasn't around alcohol. I wasn't around people I knew that I used to drink with. Um, I wasn't around bars that I used to frequent. I wasn't around grocery stores or gas stations that I used to buy booze at. You know, I wasn't around anything. I was isolated, and I was learning about my disease, learning how tricky it is, learning what it's telling me in my head and ways that it's going to try to defeat me and get me into my cave where that's where I retreated. I was, 
I was one of those people that if I got bad enough, I would just sit in my house, close all the shades and drink um, until the point where I didn't feel anything anymore. And then I would go out, you know, because then I was okay. But I got out. Uh, first thing I did is I wanted to buy a soda because they didn't allow me to have Mountain Dew in the, in the treatment facility. And I just went to this gas station and it was just like poof, right in my face. Beer ad, beer ad, beer coolers. You know, there's nine beer coolers to one soda cooler. And it was a reality check for sure. Right away, the fear, anxiety came back. That temptation was there. Can I handle myself? Can I do this? Can I realize that self-doubt uh, really started taking hold. What I had learned is I needed to call somebody or reach out and talk to somebody about it or at least get it out of me. So I went to the car and I told my mom, you know, that was a really hard experience for me. And she was like, why? And I said, because there was beer right next to the Mountain Dew and they had beer right next to the counter in a cooler, iced, waiting. It had, you know, sweat on it. I mean, it looked so amazing. But, you know, I luckily I had the vision of sitting in my truck covered in my own feces and urine and the cop and my son and it all came back to me that quickly and I got out of there then you know I got to Bozeman I started getting into the groove uh, getting into work I was going to meetings 90 meetings in 90 days is what I was told um, I had an aftercare counselor thanks uh, to the Rimrock Foundation they allowed me to go in there once a week and talk to this counselor who was a lot like uh, an AA counselor at treatment and she told me, you know, she said, anytime you call us, you come here, you bring everything, write it down and bring it to the meeting uh, and we'll talk about it. And that helped so much, you know, realizing at meetings that I wasn't the only one that was going through all this, that my feelings weren't unique, uh, that I wasn't, you know, I, I was not the only one. And there were a lot of people that were in early sobriety that when I first started learning the, the steps and, and the principles of AA and we kind of bonded and we had this little group and we all talked amongst each, ourselves in meetings. After the meetings, we did stuff together outside of going to meetings. We'd go floating, we'd go golfing, we'd go movies, we'd you know, go out to dinners. I mean, we started having fun and learning how to have fun in early sobriety without having to worry about drinking was probably the one thing that I could say helped me the most. Going to meetings, meeting these people, being able to vent, you know, about the smallest things uh, that I couldn't control in life uh, that would cause me to drink normally. Um, reaching out to somebody, finding somebody at these meetings that I could really get, a, you know, sink my teeth into and say, you know what, I want what you have. And you're sober, you have kids, you have a family, you're happy, your kids are happy, your life is great. How did you do it? And he'd say, come over to my house, you know, We'll meet every Thursday and we'll just talk about stuff. And man, ever since then, it's, it's been a godsend. I, can, I can't uh, imagine going through it without, you know, going to meetings or um, having somebody that I could reach out to or having other people who were like me. Crazy, insane, neurotic, everything, you know, that goes along with this disease. We're all the same. We all get it. And we all can say, hey, Maybe we should eat something or maybe we should go do something different. You know, let's go, let's, let's get out of here, you know, because they can recognize it. The, uh, it's like an amusement park ride, you know, uh, early sobriety. You're going to have ups and downs. My, my roller coaster with pick me is a, a pink cloud, you know, where everything is great. My life is awesome. I don't have a care in the world. And then it would be at the very lowest point, you know, after that big ride. 
and I'd be like, I can't do this anymore. I, I, why am I doing this? This, this is so hard. I can't do it anymore. And you know, all I had to do was reach out and it all comes full circle. You know, you always come back to where you start and go back to a meeting, reach out to my friends, reach out to my sponsor, you know, uh, even opening up the big book that has the 12 steps in it and just reading the 12 steps and reminding myself, I have a disease. I need to surrender to it and I need to ask for help. You know, that kind of stuff, that's honestly the, uh, the fear and the anxiety, uh, the self-doubt, learning what my disease is going to use against me. But it still does it to this day, six years sober. Um, the, anything in my life that, is, that affects me, you know, and it could be a small thing. You know, it could be something as small as my kid getting mad at me and saying he hates me. And, oh, my God, it just sends me, I'm gone. I'm thinking about, oh, I can't handle this. This is beyond my control. Oh, I, I, need, to, I need to do something about it. And it all, comes, it all comes full circle. And I just need to realize that I can't control other people, places, and things. Um, everything is the way it should be. Everything is happening for a reason. And I need to trust that whatever's happening in my life is teaching me a lesson that I need to learn to get through because life is going to get worse. Life's going to get harder. Things are going to get more complicated. And if I don't take these lessons as they come, my life is going to become more unmanageable. You know, for kids, my life is going to become out of control. <laughs> and I need to realize and I have a steady foundation that the kids are going to be kids. Everybody's going to have, you know, Everything's going to happen. They have their own God watching over them, you know, or higher power, whatever you believe. And, you know, my job is to do the best I can with what I have, do the best job of being a role model for them, showing up to meetings, helping people that need help, um, reach, be there for somebody that needs to be reached, that is reaching out. Um, that's my experience, my strength and my hope to just say, you know what, things are going to get better. Things will change. Reaching out going to a meeting and just believing in yourself that if you want to change, things will change. Bridger, before we get to the rapid fire round, I want to touch base on something you said earlier. It was when you were in the gas station, you called your mom and it was the memory of when you were in that bar parking lot covered in your own feces and your mm -hmm. own urine, right? It sounds like you stayed away from that drink from fear, but also for hope for a better life. The further I get away from a drink, those terrible memories become more distant. But I also, mm -hmm. I never want to forget how bad it was. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, because that just the thought of sometimes I go to a location and I just get anxiety and fear because the last time I yep. was there, I was fighting. I was in the struggle. I was <laughs> drunk. Yep. And so I'm glad you I'm glad you talked about that. Let's get into the rapid fire round. Please answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds. Are you ready, Bridger? Oh, I'll try. <laughs> Let's do this. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking was being arrested, covering in my own urine and poop, and the fear of uh, my life was over, that I had lost everything that I loved and, hold, and held dear, that I was worthless, that my life sucked, that I was better off dead. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? My plan in sobriety moving forward uh, is to keep on going to meetings. I go to, you know, uh, as many meetings as I can, uh, or whenever the, the, the thought comes to me that, you know, I really, I'm struggling with something. I need to go talk to somebody about it. My, uh, my plan is to keep a daily log, uh, of things that come up in my life where I either fear 
feel fear uh, or resentment, something that comes up, and even if it's somebody that cuts me off in the driver's lane, you know, I, I'm taking their inventory. I'm telling them, you know, God, you don't know how to drive. You shouldn't be driving. You shouldn't be on the road. Probably you almost killed me. You know, that's something I write down, and I go through the inventory of it and, and say, what am I selfish? What am I dishonest about? What am I fearful about? What am I going to do about it? Let it go. I meet with my sponsor once a week. Um, I, he and I have a bond that he can connect to me and get to the root of my problem and help me sort it out. Bridger, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was my first sponsor that I ever got. Um, he was a young kid that had a lot of years of sobriety and was very outspoken about, you know, your life can get better if you if you follow the simple steps. I said, really, I, I want to work with this guy. He seems very energetic, believes in what he says. And he told me, Bridger, the first thing I'm going to tell you is everything, you know, he asked me what my priorities were. And I told him, you know, my family, my job, you know, all this kind of blah, blah, blah. And he was like, well, where's sobriety in that list? And I said, well, it's after my son, of course. And my son's my top priority. And he was like, well, anything you put in front of sobriety, you're going to lose. Huh. I'm like, no. And he's like, anything you put above your sobriety, you are going to lose. Not Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not next month. But anything you put above sobriety, you're going to lose because sobriety should be your most important thing. And that really has stuck with me ever since then. Bridger, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? If you're thinking about uh, that you have a problem um, or that you need help with drinking, I would suggest reaching out to somebody uh, that uh, and even going to your first meeting. Meetings aren't necessarily a scary thing. Meetings I go to, we welcome them. Um, we we don't ask them to do anything scary or put them on a spot or do anything, but just be in that room and listen to some people that do have problems and hope that they hear something that that really clicks with them and they're like, maybe I do. And you know, if that if that option um, you think is a reality, maybe picking up a pamphlet of when the meetings are or meeting somebody and saying, hey, can I call you if I ever have a problem where I think that I might go out and drink and that's finding somebody or finding something like a meeting that you can go to on your own to really get to know yourself and be honest with yourself because honesty with yourself is probably your biggest key. Having, having, having that reality of, you know what, I don't want to drink. My mind is telling me I need to drink. I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Um, I need to call this person. Have fun without drinking in sobriety is more fun than, I've had more fun sober than I did drunk, period, hands down, without a doubt. Bridger, thank you so much for joining us today. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I appreciate it, Paul. Thank you for letting me be here. Recovery Elevator, if you don't know about the Recovery Elevator private accountability group on Facebook, you got to join. We're 75 members strong. Some of us have years of sobriety. Some of us have just days of sobriety. But we're all working together, chatting, building friendships, relationships, all sober, healthy relationships. In Facebook, simply search Recovery Elevator. If you find the page, like it, and also ask to join the group. We will approve any request. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.